Welcome along to the Go Play Soccer podcast with host Manchester United Academy coach Tom Statham. At Go Play, our aim is to bring people together from all across the world to discuss the beautiful game. Tom Statham here and today I'm pleased to introduce Mark O'Sullivan, an experienced researcher, educator and mentor to players and coaches. Mark is originally from Cork in Ireland, but he's now based in Stockholm, Sweden. And we're also delighted to welcome Jake Pickles, Academy coach at Crystal Palace. So welcome to the Go Play Soccer podcast, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for being Thank here. You. Reading some Stockholm. Excellent. So, Mark, firstly, just give us a, an idea of your journey from Cork to Stockholm, please. Okay, here goes. <laughs> um, well, in the words of Tom Waits, seen as we mentioned music earlier, I was born at a very young age. Um, <laughs> Been involved, my, my, my family is re, was really all about sport and music. We played music as a family and, you know, my father particularly encouraged us to play lots of sports. We played sports on the streets. Uh, coming from Ireland, of course, you played, we don't call it football, we call it soccer, like in the States, and we because we have Gaelic football, so we played out and we played hurling and there's a usual kind of childhood from that time where you were, you know, if Wimbledon was on TV, you went out and played tennis. You know, rub, if the rugby six or it was a five nations, then you went out and played rugby, but that wasn't much fun in the concrete. But you know, you played anyway. You were just a kid; didn't matter. Um, so, but then I also always had music, and music is still a very important factor in my life. And these two things have run parallel. So, I actually played a few games at the top le- level in Ireland uh, before I started university. And I had a, was offered a contract to play in an Irish Premier League club, but I I, I, don't know, I just went. I guess I went to the party instead. So uh, I studied economics and uh, computer science in university. I miraculously got a degree, um, and then. But I was also working in music at the time as well. And uh, then I went to uh, I went to Sweden for, to visit some friends. I studied with in 1994 in 1994 in Sweden. I was studying with some friends in university a few years previously. I went to visit them. I went for three weeks and I'm still here. And uh, in that time, I've started a help start a football club. Um, and I've had a quite a long musical career as well. I ran record labels. I was a DJ, producer, artist. I actually traveled around playing music around the world, everywhere from Tokyo to um, Barcelona to Montreal. So, um, Again, but sport was always there because I was running, helped run a soccer club and being involved in coach, playing and coaching. And I played my last, I think it was Division 4 in Sweden. I was I'm now 53, I was 42. I played my last game. Um, but they were always going parallel. But what happened, I think, around 2004 was some guy asked me, hey, you know, I'm coaching a youth team. Can you help me as assistant? I went, yeah, sure. Right. And uh, two weeks later, he jumped off and left me on my own with these people. So I was like, okay, what, what do you do? You know, so, but, um, so I kind of investigated, started getting really into learning, coaching, kind of did a lot of my own investigation and that working on my own, I guess now you'd call it research, but I didn't, at the time I was just some curious guy trolling what was the early part of the internet. Um, and I think it was, I can tell you the exact day, 2006, I was headlining the dance tent in Ross Kilda Festival in Denmark. And England and who was it? Portugal went to extra time. And I didn't what want to. Like yeah, yeah, I didn't want to go on stage because I wanted to watch the extra time. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of bad. And then I was actually doing, and this is this is the truth. I'm not making this up. I was doing an interview for Argentinian TV about electronic and techno and house music that morning and I actually in the middle of the interview I stopped to like, ask you a question why did Peckerman take off Rikilma with 20 minutes left when you're winning because <laughs> he was taking he, he him and Balak were neutralizing each other and then suddenly Balak takes the game over and you lose what went on and the, the, the poor guy wanted to interview me about electronic music and he's sitting there going and that's kind of when I went okay maybe this is where things are falling so yeah and just to really try and cut this non-linear story short I just started on this massive journey um coaching kids educating myself then doing the UA for B then the UA for A and just went on and I reached in the middle of this I reached out to some researchers whose work I just came across 
was given to me when I was in Spain visiting Espanol. They gave me some stuff from researchers that said, you should be reading this because I, I think this is how you're trying to work and think. And a lot of this was some of the early ideas around ecological dynamics, constraints-led approach, nonlinear pedagogy. And I it, it, started, it spoke to me and it started helping me articulate the ideas I had and how I was wanting to work in practice and coaching. And of course, it was far from perfect. And I understood probably 1% of it, but it kind of, it spoke to me and it helped me articulate my ideas. And, and I reached out to a lot of these researchers. They were extremely accommodating, extremely nice, spent, gave me a lot of time. And I am I'm now kind of heading into the final stages of a PhD. And I'm also head of youth development uh, well, one of the heads of youth development at AIK, uh, which is a Premier League club in Sweden, the senior team playing the national stadium, and I'm also heading up with uh, with my with Dennis Hortin, James Vaughan, uh, and our heads of our academy. We have formed um, a research uh, research and development department of methodology, and we're trying to um, help ideas from evidence inform our practice and then of course what happens in practice should also help inform our research in that there's obviously that background of creativity in music and sport and, and you've done a lot of research like you said and you talked a little about the way you like to work and and the way you like things to be done in football could you just roughly describe that you know for people that aren't maybe familiar with some of the more scientific terms you know how would you describe generally your your thoughts and your ideas yeah okay I think I must give credit to my father for a lot of these ideas when I was a young lad I remember he actually took me to see Dennis Irwin play who was a he's from Cork who's a few years older than me and uh I was playing center back for my club from athletic and he was playing for his club he was a couple of years older and my dad said go watch this lad play Dennis wasn't the tallest lad playing center back but he said, look how he just reads the game. And I was like, wow. And I learned, and I, I mean, that was, you know, I was only 14 or something at the time. And I was looking at this, I thought, wow. He, I, I was totally fascinated. My father was taking me then to these youth international games where Ireland, of course, were picking the, the biggest guy that was born in the earliest part of the year that could smell. And I remember we, he took me to a game, they're playing Holland. Holland had, had a, at that time had a couple, of, and this was, I guess, in the early 80s, couple of smaller players and they were just playing Ireland off the pitch. And I remember just this epic moment when some Irish player, big guy, huge guy, went hammering in for a tackle. The guy just jumped out of the way and the guy went straight into the wall. My <laughs> father says, there's the difference in football culture. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now, I mean, of course, Ireland has produced amazing footballers. It was really interesting how youth football was, uh, the youth football culture, and it kind of stayed with me. And um, so now I guess you could I, you could say that I have adopted what's called a more ecological approach to learning and development. Now, um, I know the words constraints-led approach have been put down and we can get in a little bit to that. So basically how I explain adopting a constraints-led approach is through this idea of learning in development, not learning and development, that learning happens in the midst of developmental changes. Now, these developmental changes are the human body, the brain, the environment. You might have a change of coach. And then there's the sociocultural. So the how society and culture changes. And learning is what the individual does about all those changes. How the individual adapts to those changes. How do you adapt if how and then it gives me great insights as a coach okay you work you know yourself you work with kids you can have a 13 year old with the biological age of probably 16 another one the biological age of 11 how do you design practice how you pedagogically work with these children to help this maybe smaller kid adapt to the environment where he's playing against bio, uh, maybe a kid who looks biologically older or is strong and how and how can even the kid that's older not overutilize his temporary um, physical advantage that makes him dominant. How how do you help him learn as well? You know, so that's kind of this idea of learning in development. That learning happens in the midst of all these many develop, developmental changes from the individuals, body, brain, the environment, and right out into the social cultural. And it's kind of in this space that I'm working. And so, what 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 I I, I try to say is that 
the learning of skills cannot just be credited alone to the training that you do in the environment. There's a whole culture and way of living and way of playing a game, which is, as you know yourself, you know, you could, you know, we can speak about the great, say, Brazilian players of the 70s and 80s, but if we do exactly what they did and bring it to USA or bring it to Manchester or whatever, it's not going to work. You know, you cannot copy and paste. So, because there's a whole culture, sort of Brazilians, they have, they had Jinga and Capoeira, which created, gave them a sway and flexibility of movement in their culture. And you think on Melandrian, which is to do with cunningness and deceit, which are very central to their culture, which then was came out in the great Brazilian players, particularly of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And even people like Romario, the gold thief, that was living on deceit. He was deceiving people all the time. So that's kind of like that. that. So I think I've just actually, I'm going to publish a paper soon, another one touching this. And really, I think that if I just zoom out and I can say is that when you're, work, when you're developing a player development framework, that player development framework must evolve in interaction with the social cultural context where individuals in that club or organization are embedded. There is no copy and paste. So I think it's... that's a great description. And I know, Jake, if we bring you in now, Jake, that I know you're very interested in this as well. And, and especially that the ecological approach. Um, and what would you like to, to say to, to Mark at this point? I think that um, I, like Mark, probably um, got to a point in my life where I just wanted to know more um, about football for whatever reason. And I'd reached out to a few people, Mark being one of them. And it sort of took me down this rabbit hole of um, ecological learning um, with thanks, thanks to things like Twitter and stuff. It's so accessible now. Um, and I just think that um, while this style of training is uh, probably something that I would ask people to do, I was wondering how you would go about um, introducing ecological practice into a system that's so deep rooted in tradition because I think that's probably the main thing yeah. I come across in English football is yeah. that we've done this and we can see it working. We can see it now. And we think that that's success. Well, how do you introduce something new that they, maybe people don't really feel like they need. And that's mm. something that um, I struggle with probably. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Something very relevant. And there's lots of different ways we could take it. First of all, when systems are defined as successful and use systems, it's often based on survivorship bias. We're looking to survivors and talent is the graveyard of evidence. Nobody sees the dead bodies. So we're just looking at the survivors of the system. We don't know what would happen if we had a maybe a more open system, a holistic system. We don't know. We were So I can give you a very brief case example of how we worked at our club, AIK. So in 2017, when I, I started, the club, the same month, it sold a player, a 17-year-old, for 10 million euro to Dortmund. Uh, Alexander Isaac, he plays in the La Liga now with uh, Sociedad. The same month, the club removed its early selection policy. It took a youth select academy at eight. It took it away um, and it didn't have a selection. We wouldn't have an academy team at 13, but we will have teams in eight to 12 formed by neighbourhoods, friendships, schools, and so we still have that. We actually even have more players now, eight to 12. Um, and we're guided by three principles. The first principle is, or three aims, not principle, three strategic aims. Um, children's well-being, number one. Number two, follow the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Children and governing documents. Number three, have more players playing in our under 16, under 17, under 19, and senior teams that come from our club. So there, everything we do in the club is based around this. So the first thing we did is we formed a research. Now, what's very clear is I'm a coach that fell backwards into research. But thankfully, a lot of these researchers that reached out were very kind and spent time or maybe they, they think they wasted their time with me. But they, they gave me a lot of their time. So I fell back into research. So what we did is we formed the research. And if you're going to change an ecology, if you're interested in changing how you work, you need to investigate yourself first. You have to investigate, why do we think this way? Why do people think this way? 
let's investigate. So we 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 did a lot of say document analysis, went through a lot of documents in the clubs, Swedish coach education, etc. We we did a lot of observation of sessions. Uh, we took part in training sessions, and then we did a lot of interviews with key people and coaches. And what we realized is that while and and from that, the information and the data we analyzed it. And from that, we looked at, okay, what do we need to amplify and what do we need to dampen? So, for instance, you can, you might have a really good engaged coach, puts a lot of time, is very enthusiastic, but maybe some of his practice might be overbearing where it's he puts himself a bit too much in the center. So can you dampen that and can you amplify his enthusiasm? Maybe there's an enthusiasm to learn and then et cetera. So it's just about these balances you're finding. You're not take say you can't do things we're amplifying and damping behaviors um and we also found that a lot of the coach some of the coaches were working within a very uh typical um what you called a planning paradigm where the coach uh decided the theme of a session that's just basically giving me the answer and then uh they decided each part of the session will be 10 minutes of this 15 minutes of that 20 minutes of that which is really weird because maybe there's some interesting stuff happening here. And can you not extend it? What we call manipulating constraints. Can you manipulate the task to really push the learning? No, we haven't. We have 15 minutes and we move on to the next thing. And so you had this very uh, linear way of planning. And, and, and it was very, very coach-centered. So again, the coach decides the team, theme, the planning, and actually you'd even coaches with coaching points. And they're going out looking for their coaching points. They weren't watching what was going on, observing what was going on. So we started to, and this was very much out in the culture because it came from the coach education, a lot of the traditional, the way we've always done it. So we can't start outside in the max. So we we, we started in um, maybe what's called doing interventions at the, the micro level out in the practice the microsystem practice. And the important thing here is you start where people are at, not where you want them to be, you know? So you, you can't go out and say to them, no, you're not to do isolated practice. You can't throw the ball in and just let them play. So what we're working from is really very simple. We'd say, okay, at this end, you have the isolated one V zero. At this end, you throw the ball and let them play. It's in this area we're trying to encourage the coaches to work. This is what we call the affordance landscape, the opportunities for action landscape. And these are great opportunities for learning. So we're, we're trying to get, we try to get coaches to work within that, th that area. I mean, and every coach has an individual history, of course, an individual background, a total, and you're also working with them as well. And just like children turn up your training session with a whole bibliography experience and opportunities afforded them up to that point of time, so do, so do uh, coaches. And you, and you we have to work with them as well in that way. So we, um, I think that that kind of starts maybe getting somewhere to, in, into the question. Again, it's very much investigate your own environment, find out why people think the way they think, why they have these ideas, why they do what they do. It's often probably a lot of sociocultural and historical reasons that influence, that cascade down, influence how people act, as in why do people coach certain ways? Because it's the way they've been taught. It's what's in the coach education. And and how, do, like, like a typical thing we found was that a lot of coaches in younger ages were doing these passing patterns and training that players were just like nine-year-olds regurgitating him in the game. You pass to him, then to him, then to him. And you just regurgitate him in the game and you win the game easily and it looks great. You look like a great coach. But they're not learning. All they're doing is they're learning. They're not learning the game. They're learning a model of the game. So, of course, then you when you go, come out and work this way, then suddenly parents are asking, hmm, how come you're not going and telling them what to do? <laughs> You know, and so this is really where the skill of a coach comes alive. And that is we're trying to we try to encourage coaches to design training where the set where the first feedback would come from the design up to the player. Feedback comes from the design to the player and how the players behave is what the coach works with. But that yeah. that design goes to the player before the session. No, 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 no. The coach, you don't, you, you design a session and it's the design is so rich with information for players to act on. 
that it's how they act on that information in the game is what you work with. You know, a lot of, like, I mean, I, I like guided discovery, but there's an issue with it just because somebody, a lot of, I see a lot of coaches, you know, they ask a question, kid gives an answer, oh, there they know it. No, they don't, because they haven't done it in the game. That's out of the game. Just because a kid can give you an answer to a question doesn't mean he can, they can perform it in the game. And it's what they do in the game is important. That's the most important thing. Yeah, and I think you, you touched on something there where coaches often coach kids in order to get a performance that makes the coach look good. And yes. then the other thing that, that really annoys me a lot as well is that you get a coach that gets the kids to sit down. Often the coach has got a whiteboard and the coach will spend 10, 15 minutes giving questions to the kids that the kids can answer mm. because it makes him look good as well because you can say, oh, they, they know all these things. But then when they go into a game situation, they're not doing anything. Like the, the, you know, the answers that they gave bear no relation to, to the way that they play. So they're just, again, regurgitating words in order to please the coach, like they're yeah. regurgitating patterns to, to please the coach. And it makes the coach look good. That's the problem is that there's this exactly. culture. And there we have a culture of compliance. And um, th these are one of the things we found in a lot of youth football. You're bang on. And of course, then, as you highlighted there, you because of it's all about performance, then parents, I guess, and coaches and people mix up performance with learning. They're not the same thing in kids. And, and that's the key thing is that as, as coaches, especially with young kids, we must make sure we focus on learning and not on performance. Mm -hmm. Because learning will probably lead, hopefully lead to performance. But just because a kid performs doesn't mean they've learned. Absolutely. And that's, again, where you need to take the long-term view because if you're focused on performance, like you said, in, in Ireland, they just had lots of big kids that were that born. That was the 80s now, so I can't say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, a long time ago, a long time ago. But the but if, if you want to get results at, at 9, 10, 11-year-old, then get kids that are born, if it's a January birthday cutoff, get kids born January, February, March. If it's a September cutoff like it is in England, September, October, November, because usually they are emotionally and physically more developed and you'll be more successful. But that doesn't mean you're going to end up with better players down the line. And it doesn't mean that and, you're going to end up. You touch on something good there about long term, because the real balance is to find this long because kids want short term as well. They want this short term. It's play. They want. I want to have fun in the short term. I want to learn. I want to feel I'm doing something. So this is the idea of working with with. Um, how we work in designing training you design for now to support the long term but it has to be so there has to be meaning and value there i don't know what the meaning and value of dribbling in outer cones are for a kid <laughs> but there has to be meaning and value to the design and that's the now which supports the long term if you, if you understand what i mean i always give the idea of why would a kid climb a tree because not because they want to get stronger, not because of better coordination, not because they want to climb higher than a friend or see further. Why would a kid climb a tree in September? Probably to steal an apple if it's an apple tree. There's meaning and value. So can you have that in, in, your, in your session? And when we say, like, I think we can get into it if you want about session design, uh, if you feel like it. Yeah, sure. Going. I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. So we did, like... When you, what's really powerful about um, adopting this ecological approach or constraints-led approach is I, I usually, usually explain this. I said the idea of learning in development, that learning happens in the midst of all these development changes from the body, brain, environment, right out to social, culturally. This really, um, <coughs> sorry, it's emphasizes, like the constraints-led approach explains the emergence of skills, how people learn. And I, I give you, well, what shapes their development, not exactly how or why, what shapes how they learn. And the example I give you, I'm writing another paper with a Russian friend on a famous ice hockey player called Pavel, Pavel Datschuk. We, um, we were lucky to get a long interview with him. He doesn't give interviews, but he's known as the magic man. He's inaugurated into the Hall of Fame. He's won loads of Stanley Cups. And I'm not a big ice hockey fan, but when I saw him play, I was like, there's something really different about this guy. And he was basically playing ice hockey like Messi. 
So you're wondering, like, why does he, how does he play? So I investigated and I presented the World Ice Hockey Conference, part of my investigations, which was kind of, and as a kid from the interview, he said they were so poor that in his area that if you broke your hockey stick, you had to wait maybe a month to get a new one. So he learned to play ice hockey, protecting the stick. So he developed this unorthodox skill set. And he never does a slap shot, which is when you open up the shoes. He said, he said to this day, he's 40 now, he's no idea how to do one. But it's a, an essential fundamental technique. <laughs> so, yes. he, so he turns up, you know, and he, he gets it late. He's drafted late into the NHL. But nobody can understand how he plays. His, the opposition, and they're calling him like, we've never seen skills like this. So he had these incredible dribbling skills. And he, he protected the stick in the puck. And I spoke with his coach in the Detroit Red Wings, and he said he used the least amount of sticks in the whole NHL as an adult. So how his style was even shaped by his, how he res, how he responded to his, uh, his culture. So from a constraint to that approach, that it, this partly explains the emergence of skills. So, but how do we work with this in practice? And I, so we use what's called nonlinear pedagogy. Now I've just, um, published a paper which i know I, I sent to you and and it's the learning development uh development framework um to help and support coaches understanding how to practically apply a constraints-led approach and nonlinear pedagogy in practice so what we did is that there are principles that guide these ideas of nonlinear pedagogy so what for what well, i designed this model called a, a foundation uh, foundation of a task design model, which explains the principles of nonlinear pedagogy for football specific tasks, actually, most invasion games specific tasks. And that is ball, opponent, direction, consequence, representative information. So I personally have a slight issue with young kids just playing possession for possession's sake. There's no direction. There has to be a direction, even if it's bi-directional, going to a target player rider, and then there is some aim. Because really, when you're just playing possession for possession's sake, there's no consequence because you lose the ball. Ah, should we get it back in a minute? Nothing's going to happen anyway. And so, and then another example I give of this model is so, yeah, you can play a game of 4v4, and some people say, oh, but everyone must touch the ball before a goal is scored. Yeah, okay, you have the ball, you have an opponent, you have direction, you do have a consequence because you lose the ball. But it's the, it's not, the information is not representative because now you have kids not acting on non-representative information. All you have to do is go over and just, everyone needs to just stand around one of the opponent's kids there and just wait for them to try and pass to them and then you take the ball. So there's little things like that. And and, and I think we, did, we, we, want, we use this to help, particularly the parent coaches we have at the club as well, to help them design. So plan they can plan around this model they can observe around this and they can reflect around this so it's very simple it's ball opponent direction consequence you lose the ball something happens um representative information and just going back slightly mark when you talk about non-linear can you just explain to some people maybe won't understand okay. that phrase well the, it's not the pedagogy is not it's the, the individual the humans are non-linear and you know our learning journeys are non-linear and now the idea of non-linearity is best explained that small inputs can have large outputs and large outputs can also have large inputs can have small outputs there's a very there's a non-linearity in the system so let's just say Going back to my father's wonderful examples <laughs> that he's given to me in the 80s. So you see a bunch of kids playing, they're eight or nine, and um, some parents and coaches shout, the ball is near, they go, get rid of it. You know? And yeah. then you see then when you've added football and you're, you know, you're watching some maybe Irish or the old old English way of playing before, it's like it was right back at the ball. They were getting rid of it. You yeah, know, so I, Mark, did you watch me play? That's how I, I played. <laughs> so there you go. So I got the ball small, and I kicked it as far as I could. <laughs> that small input as a kid to the get rid of it is amplifies right out, has a huge input affecting the culture of how the game is played. And the, so and the one, the one where the shout relax as well. As soon as you receive the ball, everyone screams relax at you. That, that seems yeah, to yeah, be a bit funny. <laughs> Chill out. Turn, turn on, but, and and the, there's also like the nonlinear 
progression of of kids that I I see as well is that people yes. think that that because you're such such a player at eight years old that you will then progress slightly at nine, slightly at ten, slightly, and yeah. you'll you'll have that straight line progression. And and that's if you stop to think about it, that's obviously a load of nonsense. So, but oh, people think that. So many things change within the individual, within the environment, within you know. We don't know what, what what's going on in school, what's going on at home. That that influences, you know, these are the key influences in young how young players learn. And maybe, as I said, the, the, the this kid's physical development, they're a bit behind. Suddenly they were scoring loads of goals to five aside. They move up to seven aside. They're having trouble with the bigger space. They haven't grown as much as some of the other kids around. So there's all these little it's complex issues to take place and this, this highlights the non-linearity of, of of the whole system of, of a of youth football and that that came home to me last week because we had four guys that are now 18 year old at Manchester United that that I coach when they were eight nine ten year olds and they're all doing well you know and, and making appearances for regularly for the under 18s but also the under 23 team and three of the four when they were nine and ten were, were very small and people questioned their mobility. And there was these, these phrases that I hate of, oh, he, he can't get around the pitch and he doesn't affect the game. And but the guy's tiny and he's, you know, he's not developed yet. And but but all of them, all three of them were technically excellent. One of them is probably the best technical player we've had in the program, you know, for the last 20 years. But his movement wasn't great. And the other two guys, you know, again, were very good technically, but their game understanding, their decision making was very advanced. And luckily, you know, we, we we stuck with them. And now, you know, that all three of them are, are taller. I'm, I'm six foot tall and they're as tall, if not slightly taller than me. So the one thing that you can guarantee a nine-year-old kid will do is grow. Whereas we we tend to overvalue physicality. And so you get a kid that's big and strong and he'll yeah. get a lot of credit. Because a lot of the performance is attached to how, how physical or mature they are. You know, in, in their, I guess, in, particularly in in their young kids, even psychological maturity, and 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 one thing I really hate is this idea of oh, he was a late bloomer. No, he was probably just a normal child growing up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just probably normal. It's, we have made normal late because we've got because we've probably gone. We're looking, and and I love this. Um, uh, there's a great line there. So said is that. Uh, and it's very much you know, children compete, adults compare. We're constantly comparing children. And we don't even understand what we're looking at. Yeah. Jake, you'd like to come um, Yeah, yeah. Um, just on that, I think that um, one of the most important things I've heard you say previously, Mark, is um, not in this podcast, but before, um, about how if you want to change a culture, that language must change first. And I find that the language we currently use in the English system that I hear quite often are things like we want to create a certain type of player or we want to produce a player and yeah. I think that when we start thinking of kids as if we're a factory and they're the product that's when and we and we hear the word holistic all the time I'm sure you guys hear it every week mm. and week out I, I don't I don't think that we're truly holistic in our approach um, in terms of an overall um, system and when I think about what I personally love about football and it might even come back to the Ronaldo Messi thing, who's better, you know. What's amazing about these two guys is they play football in completely different ways and they're completely different body types and they, and they think about the game completely differently, but they're still extremely effective at the top level. And so many players, you look at any top level player, they're completely different to the next one. And to be true, I think this is what started me on my journey was to be truly holistic, we have to allow players to solve problems in their own ways. And um, yeah, just something I wanted to bring up. I don't know if anyone has any. That's the idea of um, that language precedes culture. If you want to change a culture, change how people talk mm -hmm. to each other. And that's one of the things we did at our club at AIK when we when we started going through the research and at this, this process. And that is in a lot of our literature now we remove the word elite because believe it or not, there are no elite children. <laughs> Who'd have thought that? <laughs> I love, you know, a lot of people have elite pro coaching companies with their one-on-one -on -one coaching or elite this, elite that, or elite under sixes, under sevens or whatever. There is no, there's no such thing as an elite child. 
And we removed the word, anything, the words like product, elite, and the word talent had to be used with a certain context because talent is not something you own. It is an ongoing inter interaction with the individual environment over time. You don't own it. So we had to be very careful. And, and like that word product, you know, you've probably heard at Club X's football factory. You know, it's, these are very harm, <clears throat> harmful words, I think, that create this mythology around youth sport. Very, also, yeah. this mythology that there's there's one way of doing it. There's a secret way of doing it. There's one way of doing it, and and one of the things that, that you hear a lot is that well, you you've got to be two footed. People would recognise a lot of people listening to this and saying saying, well, you've got to you've got to make sure you're two footed. Where actually, and this this is from Jimmy Ryan, who was one of my mentors at, at Manchester United, and he just threw it out that well, if you look at most of the best players in the world, they're very one footed. Yeah, and and so are you. Are you by forcing kids, like some kids are naturally two-footed, that's okay, but by forcing kids who are very strong with one foot and are fantastic players and are, and are playing at a high level and, and solving problems and, and playing wonderful football, but by saying to them, well, well, we want you to make sure you're good with your weaker foot, are you then taking away from the time and the development of that stronger foot? And uh, that, that was something that... Yeah, really I think it's important. That's a good point because you probably might be hindering their creativity because exactly. you know, probably you've seen through the years, you probably named loads of great Man United players that have only used one foot and another foot for standing on. But by God, they could, you know, it didn't matter. They, they had such unique ways of playing. And this is, you know, it goes back to the Pavel story. He he didn't do it the normal way, the, the, the hockey player. He learned to play completely different. He learned best hockey in, protecting the the, the uh, stick in the puck. So, no, I, I think, yeah, I, I think about this a lot. I don't, I personally don't, and I even say this when you have things like multi-sport. You do not prescribe something to a child. You do not prescribe a child must play with both feet. But you do give the opportunities where they can express themselves with both feet. Sure. You don't tell them to use both feet. Of Just course. like multi-sport, you don't force kids to do loads of sport. But you do give provide opportunities for them to take part in other sports. But you don't yeah. say you must do other sports. Yeah, and that, it's like we had uh, we chatted to the kids the other week and uh, United, and we said, "What was your favourite session this year?" And most of them said it was the frisbee session. We, didn't, we had a frisbee night. We played um, like rugby, you know, like end zone frisbee or whatever, and we yeah, played that really. for, for half the session. And that was their that was their favourite session of the, of the whole year. You probably brought back a very, like, you probably took out a very appealing part of, of what childhood is there. Yeah. Is there, on, that, on that note, Tom, um, is, that, is the question of should he be better on one foot or the other or should he be better um, with both feet because we're looking for this well-rounded player that people seem to want to find. Is that the question or is really the question if you want to help develop someone and help them improve in terms of how they think about the game um, and in, improve their effectiveness long-term, would the question not be, well, how is this player losing the ball? Can you somehow find a way to maybe even stat that? And so there's something real there rather than just your opinion. And then we, we had, we've got an amazing left-footed player in our under-10s now, class little lad and um, so left-footed. And he actually lost the ball more. I had a little look, everyone's saying he needs to use his right foot, he needs to use his right foot he lost the ball more going on his strong side. And what I've found out, and this is just over five or six games, I just started it, when he runs with the ball, he dribbles with the ball often, he lost the ball more on his strong side than running across players onto his weak side, but with his left foot still. So he's running to his right. And what it seems to me is that he was playing against a lot of right-footed players who were stronger defending on their right side. And this is what we sort of came up with. So what we've tried to adapt to training is, actually put him on his good foot and see if he can beat those right-footed players, play him against players who are really strong defensively on their and right foot and give him, like Mark said, the opportunity to come up with something. I don't care if he uses his right foot, his left foot. I don't care if he kneels down and heads the ball past the player. If it's effective and he can and he can do it and he finds a way to do it, that's, that's what we should care about, I think, as developers. And I think that's when you can truly say that you're developing holistically. You're helping him find a way. And you can even do that in small game situations, or you can do it in simple one v one situations by making sure you put it together with somebody that does where he where it really becomes 
intense. And I think that's that's, that's really good. I, I actually gave some similar example on a, another part about this. And I think that's a, a very good way of working with that. You you make sure they experience these situations where, okay, this kid has to find it. And maybe he does find a solution with his left foot. That's just great. Who cares? And I, I don't know if you'd agree. I, the term I've used for many years is experiential learning because I think <clears throat> you learn from experience, whereas I feel that a lot of coaches think, or even parents, think that kids learn by adults telling them what to do. And whereas they, they don't, they, that's where it gets back to, you know, the, the things that I've said a number of times in these podcasts and said a million times to people that know me is that that you've got to, that this designing of practices, design that, that that's where a lot of your coaching is. So design the practice, observe the practice. If it needs adjusting, adjust the practice. But if it's working, if you've done your work and, and you've, you've got great knowledge and you know your kids and you know the, the game, you should be pretty spot on with your design of your practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's, don't go looking for things like you said earlier, Mark, don't go looking for things to coach, just sit yeah. back and enjoy the fact that, that you've designed something and the kids are doing it well and, and allow them to experience that. But this, this thing of learning is adults telling kids what to do is so wrong. And, and by experience, you know, and I, I did a, I did a session actually last night and, um, I wanted to, and I noticed during it that the passing, and I've done this before, the passing was pretty, you know, these kids should be passing the ball harder to each other because they're so good at receiving the ball. They're quite, you know, and, and I, I stopped the session. I said, guys, come here. And, you know, we have actually a full, uh, a guy that works full time with values in our club. We have a values coordinator. And he, um, one of our, va- so say a value would be respect. You respect your coach. You ha- you say hello to each other when you come. And if you're coming late, you know, make sure if you're young that your parents text because you're sms the coach text the coach because you're stuck in traffic but you can also use this in training so i was saying okay instead of saying okay guys you need to pass harder to each other that's, that's there's no meaning and value to that but there is meaning and value to you need to pass it respect because i think you're so good at receiving the ball that you know if you just hit this light pass to somebody are you really respecting them because they're really good at receiving the ball so how do you pass it respect and they got it um, Harder, firmer passes. That's interesting because again, another <laughs> another famous coach at Manchester United, Eric Harrison, he used to say that it was a gift. You were giving a gift. A pass mm-hmm. was a gift. And so, and he'd say, Well, if at Christmas you open up your your present and you don't like it, that, that's not a gift, is it? A gift is something you want to receive. So always mm-hmm. think about the pass that you give. You want the person to want to receive it, whether mm-hmm. that's a firm pass, soft pass, it depends on the Depends on the situation, but that that idea of just putting something into someone's head of saying, you know, it, it's a gift really works well. And, and obviously that happened as well. Thinking about last night, Mark, I've got to say this, you'd have loved, I think you'd have loved what we did last night at, with the under nines and tens at Manchester United. Cause we, we got all the kids, we've got about say high forties numbers of kids. And we, we just ignored their age and we had three games going on three sort of seven aside games going on. Uh, six aside, seven aside, and it was just all in size. It was all we we did that. So we had a pitch with the little kids, a pitch with the big kids, and a pitch with the medium kids. And the I was with the pitch with the the uh, bigger kids, and everyone was at that level. Everyone was at a similar level, and the standard was fantastic. And because the practice worked, the standard of play was was amazing. We started off with two man Wembley in pairs, and then we went on to to games, and that's all we did all night. But because the environment was right, because the ecology was right, because they were with kids of the same sort of ability and, and size, the, the practice just flowed. And it, and it was a, the, the time flew and the quality was amazing. Great. 40 kids. I hope it wasn't just you. No, no. Goodness me, man. It was about, there was seven or eight of us. No, it wasn't me. But, but if it had been me, then, you know, there was very little to do because those kids were so engaged, you know. They're, they're talented, they're competitive, and they, they would have played, you know, we played till uh, 7.30, but they would have played till 8.30 because mm. it was it was so good, challenging, competitive. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that a lot of coaches think there's that's too simple, whereas actually th- there's a beauty in that simplicity. If you've got something that works and you put it into practice, the kids will learn. And, again, there's that pressure of, well, that's all you did all night. But there's so much learning going on in it, and and that's I mean, what you're prioritizing. Yeah, 
And, you know, I mean, I think there must be nothing more fun for a kid to have a ball with it, to take on an opponent, to go somewhere to score a goal, knowing that if I lose it, I need to try and win it back. So we're going to have to move towards the end of this. Um, time's really flown by, you know, in this podcast, not just in the session last night. But one of the things I just want to talk to you about is this concept of knowledge about and knowledge of, because I think that's really important to to get across to people and and try and and have people understand those phrases. Okay, yeah. Well, this is from um, an ecological psychologist called James Gibson. So I think the best way to explain it is that. Uh, knowledge about the game is just given back in verbal uh, answers to kids. We, we discussed a little bit earlier. So you ask a question and they say, oh, we'll do this and this. But knowledge of is what happens in the game, knowledge in the game. And that's, um, it's, it's quite a difference. And I think it's just when you, just because you ask a kid a question, they give you an answer they're displaying knowledge about that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to perform it or do it or they can do it. It's a different sort of form of knowledge. Knowledge of is knowledge in. And from a coach's point of view, I think it's important that the coach has knowledge about the game in order to design the practices and so on. But the aim of the coach shouldn't be to develop the kids' knowledge about the game, it should be to develop the kids' knowledge of the game. Yes, not knowledge of the game, yes, of course, but also as they're developing knowledge of the game, then you can develop their knowledge about the game in tandem. But we tend to prioritise it the other way around. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to, to emphasise. Jake, any any final thoughts for Mark? Yeah, just, just on that, really. Um, I think that it's important to remember that there's a ceiling to our own knowledge as individuals. And when we, if we impose that knowledge on other people and not just, probably not just in football, not just in football development, but in life, people think about things differently. And there's always an opportunity if they are creative and good problem solvers, that they can surpass you. The more we impose our thoughts on other people, I think um, the less opportunity they have to do that. So rather than us thinking of ourselves as, even a coach, someone who imparts knowledge, should probably be there as, like Mark said all, all through this, you know, about designing a session to give opportunities for players to learn. We're more of a architect, so we de- we design these uh, problems for players to solve, and then we support them on that journey as they try and solve them in their own individual ways. I think rather than imposing our knowledge, it should be more of a journey that you sort of take together with the player. And, the, and an important point in this is that there's also this misunderstanding that we shouldn't have instructions. Of course you need instructions if you're just having a session. I mean, you you can tell, you, you can support a kid by telling them what to do without telling them how to do it. You know, so um, there is this myth that I've seen around constraints, but you're not allowed to use instructions. That's That's not true. Do you it's mean just, guiding attention, Mark? Yeah, and instruction is just another constraint. And yeah. if you over-instruct, you're over-constraining. So, I mean, you can say to kid like a team, okay, I think we need we need to, the challenge might be, uh, okay, guys, I want you to see if you can play through, around, or over. And what is the best option? So if they're, okay, they're pressing high, you know, okay, we play over. So or we play through, you know. So so I'm I'm given instruction. I want I want us to really start play, focusing on playing through, around, or over, and what are the best options. So I give them that instruction, but I haven't told them how. They can pass. They can dribble. I haven't told them if they should play just over or around or anything. But the the instruction was clear that I I think that's because that's what they need. Brilliant. And I'd just like to end by bringing it back to your love of music, Mark, because. The Beatles, are, I don't know if you're a Beatles fan. I'm assuming that you are. Well, they've written some great songs. <laughs> they've written some great songs and people say that they're the greatest rock and roll group or whatever of, of all time. But to my knowledge, John and Paul couldn't read music. None of them could. Yeah. Not, and and, and here's, here's an interesting one for you. This is really cool. You can check this out. Go to the Ringo Starr, the Elvis Costello show. And everyone, and this is so what I mean about skills emerging under constraints. Um, Ringo's drum sound or how he played his style he used to call it the backbeat 
or something. That was a name given to the, the, the style of play the beat, the backbeat. And what it was was that this, the, uh, this, the the last, the second beat in every bar or something was 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 dragged. So there was a little drag, and it gave this kind of slight groove. And you'd all and Ringo's rolls were really unusual when he played the drums. And you can hear it on Sgt. Pepper in the day in the life and when he's rolling and and even on Tomorrow Never Knows on Revolver. And people have tried to copy this, you know, and they, they can do it, but they don't get the drag, they don't get the feel. So he's on the he's on the uh, Elvis Costello show and he's going through and he's showing how he's playing Ticket to Ride and uh, come together and the drums and they're going well well to be honest with you I play with my shoulder like this because I'm um I'm a left-handed drummer that played learned to play in a right-handed kit and nobody ever told me <laughs> so this whole way of coordinating is completely different and it gave them this unique style so we're kind of lucky that nobody stepped and said you're doing that wrong yeah uh, absolutely and that, uh, I wanted to bring that up because of the this idea in football, especially, there's this one way to do it. And, and this we talked about producing players and you've got to do it this way. Whereas actually the, a lot of the best players, a lot of the best musicians, a lot of the best footballers, a lot of the best ice hockey players, as you mentioned earlier, are coming from a very unconventional background. And, and that, that allows them to produce these, these amazing performances. Yeah, so, some are. Some, I think it's... It's hard to know, you know, it's just, again, I just find the constraints, it's a good way of understanding how skills emerge and how players are learning skills. And it's a good way of working with young kids. And, you know, okay, as I said, we spoke about this idea of learning and development, that where are they in their own development? What is happening in in their development outside of, of football? What's happening in school? What is society and culture telling them? Yeah, and, and there, there are bound to be people that, are going to listen to this, Mark, that will want to find out more, where would you direct them um, to find out more about your work or about some of some of these constraints-led approaches? Um, yeah, I mean, you can email me. You can, if you're just, you can attach my email and Twitter if you want. Uh, at Mark, M-A-R-K-S-T-K-H-L-M. At M-A-R-K-S-T-K-H-L-M at Mark Stockholm. And uh, you can, you know, pass my email on as well if you want anyone gets in touch. Fantastic. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I've, I've wanted to speak to you for a while and, um, you know, it's certainly lived up to to everything that I thought it was going to be. And um, hopefully you've enjoyed it, Jake. And yeah. uh, we hope that, uh, that people listening to this will get a lot out of it. So thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, Jake. And thanks uh, for having me. You're very welcome. And I hope everyone enjoyed that edition of the Go Play Soccer podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you have a question or comment for us, or if you'd like to take part in one of our podcasts, please email podcast at goplaysoccer.com.